Father, we now ask in the name of Jesus that your spirit would open up our hearts and graciously share with us these facts of the Old Testament that we are unfamiliar with, that we might have the background necessary to understand many of the words of Jesus, many of the words of the writer to the, the book of Hebrews and Corinthians. Lord, I pray that you would deepen our knowledge, not just academically, Lord, but you would deepen our knowledge of you as we see how you operate. We see what kind of a God you are to your people at different stages of history. And that's our desire, is that we might know you and the fellowship of your sufferings, the power of your resurrection, that we might be made conformable even unto your death, as Paul prayed in Jesus' name. Amen. The book of Numbers is so relevant a book that Jesus quotes from it. A familiar story he brings to mind about the serpent in the wilderness. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, the Son of Man will be lifted up. And we get that story in the book of Numbers as the children of Israel gripe and murmur and complain and moan and drone. And so God sends snakes to bite them and to kill them. And when enough of them are dying, they're crying out, God instructs Moses to put a bronze snake up on a pole to raise it up and command the children of Israel to look toward that by faith. And if they would do it, God would heal them. And so they look to that symbol of judgment, and God miraculously healed them. And Jesus made reference to that in the Gospels. If you don't know the book of Numbers, you'll read it and you go, what on earth is he talking about? The writer Paul the Apostle in the book of Corinthians uses the book of Numbers as a negative example. Let us not murmur, he said, as some of them murmured and died. Let us not commit sexual immorality as many of them did and died. Let us not, let us not. And he points back to the book of Numbers. Then the writer of Hebrews makes reference to the book of Numbers. Let us strive to enter into that rest, mixing the promises of God with faith, not being like those who had the same promises but failed to mix them by faith. Now, granted, the first few chapters of the book of Numbers is a book of numbers. Lots of numbers are here, numbers of tribes, numbers of families. And so we're going to kind of give a synopsis of some of it tonight because the narrative part, all of those stories begin a few chapters on. But we left off in verse 13 of chapter 3, and that is the offering of the firstborn. Let's start in verse 11. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Now behold, I myself have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of every firstborn who opens the womb among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine, because all the firstborn are mine. On the day that I struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified to myself all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast. They shall be mine. I am the Lord. God places a high priority on children and the raising of children, the setting apart of kids to be his dedicated unto him, that they would be trained up in the ways of the Lord. And so Psalm 127 tells us, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is his reward. Think about that next time your child does something and you think, man, this kid bugs me. Especially if you have a lot of children think, man, this is just too many to manage. Listen, you're greatly rewarded. The fruit of the womb is his reward. It's a heritage from God. God knew you could handle it. And I've got to say that the world needs more of your kind of kids. They do. They need more Christian kids, more to be witnesses. Think of the potential 
of a child offered and dedicated to God. One person that can turn a community around, that can be the the future leaders, evangelists, pastors, politicians, leaders for Jesus Christ. What an awesome thought. There was once a major league baseball player, and he recounted his days as a youth playing in the backyard, playing on the grass in the backyard. He and his friends were over. They were running out, playing catch, hitting the ball. Just loved baseball. His dad was out in the backyard with the kids, throwing the ball around, and they were wearing out the backyard grass. You know, if you play on grass long enough, it just becomes a hard, dirt-packed area. And so the child's mother pulled the window upstairs and leaned out and said, You should stop playing there. You're killing the grass. And the father was wise enough to gently remind his wife, But we're not raising grass, honey. We're raising kids. (laughs) And so the kids are to be raised, dedicated to God. The firstborn, and in our case, firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn, all Lord, they're yours. Show me what you want that I might direct them in the way that you have set aside for them. And the Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai, saying, Number the children of Levi by their fathers' houses. By their families you shall number every male from a month old and above. So Moses numbered them according to the word of the Lord as he was commanded. These were the sons of Levi by their names, Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. Now, I'm not going to read all this chapter, but I would give this chapter the name My Three Sons, because that's really what it is. Chapters 3 and 4 are My Three Sons, the sons of Levi, each of them performing a different function, each of them camping in a different area around the tabernacle. And we'll discuss what they had to do, what their roles were, their jobs. Um, Look down in verse 25. The duties of the children of Gershon in the tabernacle of meeting include the tabernacle, the tent with its coverings, the screen for the door of the tabernacle of meeting, the screen for the door of the court, the hangings of the court which are around the tabernacle and the altar, and their cords according to the work relating to them. They camped on the west side. They had to carry the soft stuff, the skins of the animals, the cloths, the veils, That was their job. Then we come in verse 27 to Kohath. From Kohath came the family of the other ites, all these ites that are mentioned in there. The Izzarites, the family of the Hebronites, the family of the Uzielites, the Termites, and everybody else. That's not in the text. Don't look for it. According to the number of all the males from a month old and above, there were 8,600 keeping charge of the sanctuary. The Kohathites camped on the south end of the tabernacle. And they were the guys that had charge of the holy articles, the Ark of the Covenant, the Altar of Incense, the Table of Showbread, the seven-branched golden lampstand, all of the furniture in the holy place and inside the Holy of Holies. That was, that was their charge. Now go down to verse 33. From Merari... And they were never called the Merariites, but the sons of Merari. From Merari came the family of the Malites, the family of the Mushites. These were the families of Merari. They camped on the north side. And they had charge of the infrastructure. Poles, sockets, boards, the stuff that the skins and all the soft hangings and veils were fastened to. They had charge of the infrastructure. Now, each family would have charge of a certain portion of it. Why? So when that cloud started a moving, they would know exactly what to do in what order. I believe that they could have set up the entire tabernacle probably in about 30 minutes. They all did their jobs right. 30 minutes, no more. It was all it would take to put everything in, get it all set up. After all, it was a tent-like structure. Everybody with this many doing it, thousands of people doing it, wouldn't take much time at all. And so from verse 33 on, 
their job is given. And then verse 40. Boy, we're really moving through this chapter. And the Lord said to Moses, Number all the firstborn males of the children of Israel from a month old and above. Take a number of their names, and you shall take the Levites for me. I am the Lord. Instead of all the firstborn from among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites, instead of all the firstborn among the livestock of the children of Israel. So Moses numbered all the firstborn among the children of Israel as the Lord commanded him. And all the uh, firstborn males, according to the number of the names from a month old and above, of those who were numbered of them were 22,273. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the Levites instead of all the firstborn among the children of Israel and the livestock of the Levites instead of their livestock. The Levites shall be mine. I am the Lord. I love that. I am the Lord. Enough said. When God says, I want them, he gives a reason. I am the Lord. He didn't sit and give a long theological reason. Do this. Why? I am the Lord. Enough said. Okay, he's the boss, the creator. And for the redemption of 273 of the firstborn of the children of Israel, who are more than the number of Levites. In other words, there were just a little bit more of the firstborn of the children of Israel than there were cumulatively of all of the Levites that belonged to God. You shall take five shekels for each one individually. You shall take them in the currency of the shekel of the sanctuary, the shekel of 20 geras. And you shall give the money with which the excess number of them is redeemed to Aaron and his sons. So Moses took the redemption money from those who were over and above those who were redeemed by the Levites. From the firstborn of the children of Israel, he took the money, 1,365 shekels, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. And Moses gave their redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord as the Lord commanded Moses. So the entire tribe of Levi existed vicariously. They were substitutes, that's what it means, substituting for the firstborn among all of the millions that were encamped around the tabernacle to minister to the Lord. Now, that's the Old Testament. We live in the New Testament. And in the New Testament, things are quite a bit different, right? We don't have priests anymore. We don't need priests anymore to represent us before God. We don't need a certain special person who would seemingly be closer to God. Oh, that's my priest. That's my mediator. No, there's only one mediator, Paul said, between God and man. Now, the man, Christ Jesus. Also, Peter said, you are a kingdom of priests. You're a priest. When I was a boy, my mom had her desire for my life. She wanted me to be a priest. She wanted Jim to be a priest, and he went to seminary in San Diego, wore a collar, got educated in the priesthood, took all the theology courses, and came real close to being ordained. And he thought, you know what? I'm not cut out for this. I want a wife. And he got married. Next in line was Rick. He also went to seminary, and he wore the little white collar. He almost became ordained, and he thought, I can't hang with this. I want a motorcycle. <laughs> so he bought a Triumph 650, chopped it out, kind of went wild after that, and just went around the country. There were two left, Bob and Skip. Bob wanted to go to law school. And so Skip was left. I was their last hope for becoming a priest. Can you imagine? Father Skip. <laughs> I came home one day and I said, Mom, your dream is fulfilled. She said, what do you mean my dream is fulfilled? I said, it's fulfilled. I'm a priest. She said, What? What are you talking about? And I showed her Peter. I'm a, we're a, we're a, every believer in Jesus Christ is a nation of priests, a kingdom of priests. That because Jesus Christ is the great high priest, 
and we belong to him as a covenant people. It's much like in the Old Testament. You had Aaron and the Levites, and all of the Levites belonged to Aaron for the keeping up of the sanctuary. So all of us belong to Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who's made atonement for us, and we're a kingdom of priests. She didn't get all that excited about my explanation. <laughs> but there is a beautiful, beautiful picture here of the body of Christ. Each of the members of the tribe of Levi, and it was a large tribe, there were thousands of them, each had a particular duty. One guy's duty was just to roll up a cloth and carry it. Another guy had to pick a socket up from the ground. Another guy had to move a pole. Another guy had to load the pole on the wagon. Each had a duty to contribute. In the body of Christ, as a kingdom of priests, you have a ministry. You have gifts that God has given uniquely to you. A mix an imprint of the Holy Spirit upon your life, like a snowflake, you are unique and individual and no one can really replace you exactly. You are unique. And it's important that we discover exactly where we fit in the body of Christ, in this priesthood of believers, that we might minister unto the Lord and minister to God's people. You say, well, I know that there's gifts of the Spirit, but I'm sure that God overlooked me. No, He didn't overlook you. He didn't overlook anybody. Each one of you is called to be in the ministry. In fact, it says in Ephesians that God has given to the church pastors, evangelists, apostles, so forth, that we might perfect the body of Christ, mature the body of Christ, so that the body of Christ would do the work of the ministry. Did you know that your job is the work of the ministry? You're to be trained, you're to discover your gift, and you are to do the work of them. And that's how most ministries around here start. Somebody says, man, I have a real burden to reach out to this group. You ought to do something about that, Skip. I said, I'm going to do something about it. I'm commissioning you. <laughs> Go in God's grace and God's name. And we'll see if they fly, see how they work, see if it really happens. Most of the ministries that have started around here have started by a vision captured by somebody that God has gifted uniquely. Corinthians tells us, Paul writes and says, the manifestation of the Spirit is given to everyone for the profit of all. And you're part of everyone. You're included in that. You all have a gift, and you should function in that. I love the story in the book of Acts chapter 6 when there is a problem in the early church. And, and it's a classic because it happens in every assembly. It says, when the number of the disciples multiplied, they had problems. And anytime you have a multiplication of people, more and more people, you have problems. You don't have perfection, you have problems. And so they did the natural thing. They came to the apostles. The problem is that some of the Grecian widows felt that they were being neglected when they would dole out the provisions for the widows. The church would take care of the widows. They thought that they were giving preferential treatment to the Hebrew widows instead of the Greek-speaking widows, and they felt slighted. So they brought the problem to the apostles, and I love the response. The apostles didn't say, oh, okay, okay, we'll do something. Don't worry, we'll, we'll make you happy. They said, look, we're not called to leave the Word of God and serve tables. But you choose seven men filled with the Holy Spirit. Good reputation. Choose them. Bring them to us. And we'll release them. So they picked out Stephen and several others. Seven guys filled with wisdom, filled with the Holy Spirit. Brought them to the apostles. The apostles laid hands on them and said, Go to work, gang. And the work was done. So you had a spiritual problem met by spiritual priorities, not leaving the Word of God to serve tables, and spiritual people, the laity and the body of Christ, and the needs were met. See, they came and said, come on, you're the apostles, get this thing done. And the apostles said, we'll do it. Go pick seven people and we'll release them. But we are not going to leave the word of God and serve tables. We'll give ourselves to prayer and the study of the word of God. And it's a beautiful example for us to follow. Servants, oh, how we need servants in the body of Christ. 
Somebody will say, I'll move that pole. I'll take that socket. Oh, you want the veil rolled up? No problem. I'll do it. I'm sure that there was a couple of the Levites who thought, you know, this isn't a glamorous ministry. All I do is roll up this sheet. When I joined this Levite club, I thought, you know, I'll be recognized for something. I want my name in the bulletin. But we need servants. There's too many celebrities. We need servants. I love the story of a dream that a fellow had. That, And I've told this story, but I love it so much, I'll tell it again, just in case you haven't heard it. He had a dream that he was sitting around a banquet table. And the banquet table was filled with the best food, turkey and stuffing and cranberry sauce, and everybody was decked out in their finest garments. They were all hungry. But in his dream, as oftentimes you can't explain why you dream the way you dream, the problem is that everybody's arms, they had these boards like in hospitals, those little elbow boards, and their arms were tied to these boards so they couldn't bend them at the elbow. So you had these stiff-armed people sitting at this beautiful banquet table. So they were able to grab the food, but they were not able to bend their arm in order to put it in their mouth. And that posed a problem. (laughs) One guy had a bright idea. He could reach out, grab a portion of food, and put it in the guy across the table's mouth. And the guy said, oh, thanks. Oh, man, that's so good. And the rest of them are going, yeah, well, I'd like to try some. And so his example caused him to pass it to the other guy. And they all got the idea that they would serve one another. And they all enjoyed that meal, but not by serving themselves, but by serving one another. That's what we need in the church, people who will be servants to the body of Christ. And so... Chapter ends, Moses gave the redemption money to Aaron and his sons according to the word of the Lord, as the Lord commanded Moses. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Take a census of the sons of Kohath among the children of Levi by their families, by their father's house. You're going to wait a minute. We just did that. That's what chapter 3 was all about. You take a census. Now we're taking another census. Now the difference between chapter 3 and 4, and again we'll try to skim through this, is chapter 3 is a census of the Levites from a month old and above, whereas chapter 4 is a census of the working Levites from age 30 to age 50. That's the major difference. The guys who are going to do the work, the census is to be taken. Verse 3, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, all who enter the service to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. You'd start when you were 30 years old. Now, over in chapter 8, you may notice this. I'll give you advance warning. In verse 24, it says that they were inducted at age 25 to do the work of the ministry. Here it says age 30. Why the discrepancy? Probably there was a five-year training period because you just couldn't come in and start slapping sacrifices around. It was a detailed operation. The entire book of Leviticus probably had to be memorized. All of those things. So they had five years to train. They were released at age 30, and they worked until they were 50, which means at 50 they retired. Isn't that great? From age 30 to age 50, the prime of a man's life, given over to the Lord. But at age 50, the Levites were commanded to retire. Now, probably they retired because, listen, the desert, wandering around the desert is tough work. And there were so many of them anyway, they just thought, no, use them until they're age 50. And after they're 50, you know, being out in this desert, you know, like this, they've aged. Now, things would have changed today. And in fact, David when he sort of takes charge of the worship of the tabernacle in 1 Chronicles chapter 23, lowers the age to age 20. Now, don't ask me to explain why he did this, but he did it. And he selected Levites starting at age 20 up to age 50. He got an extra 10 years out of them. But it's interesting, Jesus, when he started his ministry as our great high priest, started at age 30. 
not at age 20, but at age 30, according to the laws. He said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. And Jesus started his ministry at age 30. Now we see in verse 1 and 2 that there's a chain of command, isn't there? God speaks to Moses. He does not speak to a committee. He speaks to Moses and Aaron. Moses and Aaron speak to the Kohathites, sons of Merari, all the sons of Levi, and then the rest of the children of Israel. It was at this time a theocracy. God called the shots. I think it's the best form of government ever. It was a theocracy. It was not a democracy where the people rule. I think people have proven they're incapable of governing themselves. I don't want to sound like a communist, but I simply think that if you examine any form of government in history, eventually there is a breakdown. Man in the long haul is incapable of governing himself properly. Now God's going to prove that in the end when he restores everything to a theocracy once again in the kingdom age. It was a theocracy. Later on, it converts to an autocracy where you have a king in control, a single person, and he abuses his leadership. Later on, it will become a democracy. But in the kingdom age, it will become a theocracy once again. So from 30 to 50, all who enter the service of the work of the tabernacle of meeting, this is the service, verse 4, of the sons of Kohath, in the tabernacle of meeting relating to the holy things. Now, when it comes to today, there is no little age thing that you have to follow. If you want to serve God, it's like, well, are you 30 years old yet? Listen, I started pastoring when I was 25, and I thought, hey, I better start soon because I'm getting old. Paul said to Timothy, let no one despise your youth. You can be 80 years old or above. You can still serve the Lord. Look at Caleb. He said, look, and I'm 80 years old today. Or I'm 85, he said, in the book of John. I'm 85 years old, and I'm just as strong, Joshua, as I was 40 years ago in the desert. And I want to take this city and take this mountain for God. It doesn't matter what age you are. God can use you at any age. One of the reasons I delight in watching so many of you is that there is no age restriction. You have just trusted God. Now, Calvary Chapel has sort of been known as, oh, yeah, that's the young church, the youthful, the kids go there. Hey, fine, that's great. Because I've known so many churches that come up with all sorts of gimmicks to get kids there. And it's great when we see kids being raised up to take classes, to become missionaries, to start churches. There's no age parameters in the New Testament. It's just the spiritual maturity. You know, listen, I've seen kids who are 20 years old who are more spiritually mature than people who are 40 years old because they've grown in Christ. And I've known people who've been Christians for many, many years but are still spiritually immature. You can grow as much as you want. Now, the Kohathites, beginning in verse 4, and this is what they do as they travel. They're getting all ready, you know, for the march. The preparation is at hand. When the camp prepares to journey, Aaron and his son shall come. They shall take down the covering of the veil over the ark of the testimony with it. They shall put it on a covering of badger skins and spread over that a cloth entirely of blue and shall insert its poles. So this is what the priests would do. They'd come in. Take the veil that hung between the holy place, holy of holies, drape it over the tabernacle, put the skins over it, and finally, a covering of blue. That's what the children of Israel were allowed to see. You couldn't look upon the ark. It had to be blue showing. You put the poles in it, and it was carried by the priests. Now, you're going to notice something. And again, this is different from the Old to the New Testament. There is reverence for religious articles in the Old Testament. You know, you don't touch the ark, you don't move it, except a certain way by a certain number of people, by a certain class of people. You approach God in a very trepidous way in the Old Testament. You couldn't decide one morning, man, I want intimate fellowship with God. I'm going to go right into the Holy of Holies right now and just sit on the Ark of the Covenant where God is, and I'm just going to talk to Him. You would kick the bucket. You would die. You'd be a post-toasty. You had to go through a priest. Now, in the New Testament, it's different. You are a priest. You are the temple of God. And because of what Jesus has done, you can come in 
to the Holy of Holies at any time. That is, you can pray in the name of Jesus and your prayer is heard in heaven. That's awesome. Which means also there are no holy articles. There's no holy places. When I go to Israel, they say, shh. You go into certain churches, shh, this is a holy place. I feel like singing loudly in own worship, but I don't. But there are no holy places. There's only holy people. But it's funny how people love icons to worship. Holy articles, holy garments, shrouds of Turin, doves. (laughs) Worshiping an image or an icon. There's no such thing in the New Testament. They put the badger skins on it and they move it. Down in verse 21, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, this is now what the Gershonites do. Remember, they had the cloth in the tabernacle. Also take a census of the sons of Gershon by their father's house, by their families, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old. You shall number them, all who enter to perform the service, to do the work in the tabernacle of meeting. This is the service of the family of the Gershonites in serving and caring. So they were to pack up the cloths, the hides, the curtains, the veils. Now in verse 29, the sons of Merari, you shall number them by their families, by their father's house. From 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, you shall number them, everyone who enters the work of the tabernacle of meeting. And this is what they must carry as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting, the boards of the tabernacle, its bars, pillars, sockets, pillars around the courts with their sockets, pegs, cords, with all their furnishings and all their service you shall assign to each man by name the items he must carry. This is the service of the families of the sons of Merari as all their service for the tabernacle of meeting under the hand of Ithamar, the son of Aaron, the priest. These were the heavy articles, the infrastructure of the tabernacle. And Moses and Aaron, Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of the congregation numbered the sons of the Kohathites by their families, by their father's house, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who entered the service for the work in the tabernacle of meeting. And those who were numbered by their families were 2,750. So they had, uh, they had quite a gang doing this. Now, this is how it worked get up in the morning and they'd look out. Moses and Aaron would have their eye on that pillar, that miraculous glory of God, that pillar of cloud that hung above the tabernacle. And if they saw it move, first the priests would go in, put the veil on the ark, put the skins on it, the cloth of blue, carry it out. The Kohathites would come in, wrap up, package up all the articles of furniture. They would move them out. Again, only the curtains of blue could be shown. And then uh, after the Kohathites, the Gershonites would come in, rolling up all the veils, all the skins, and then finally the sons of Merari would come in and take all of the infrastructure down, and they'd be on the road again, and they'd be going out to the wilderness, wherever that cloud stopped. And then they would sort of reverse the order whenever they would stop, and they would go on. But everyone had their task. Now let's just say there's one of the sons of Merari and he's just bored with his task. He says, man, I've been doing this for 20 years. Taking this stupid pillar. Guy pulls off the curtain and I got to take this pillar. I wrap it up and I throw it in the wagon. Got the kids in the wagon, wife's in the wagon. Sheep are behind me, and I've got to put this pillar. I've been doing this thing for 20 years. What a dumb task. What a meaningless task. Nobody sees me. Moses doesn't acknowledge me. I'm anonymous. There's thousands of us here. Why, I'm not important at all. And I, I probably wouldn't be missed anyway. So let's say they break down the tabernacle, and he leaves the pole or the socket in his place. 
and moves on. It's just sitting out there in the desert. And they go for several miles. God stops the pillar, and so they start setting up. And everything's okay except they're missing something. They can't find that pole. And so Aaron hears about it, and he goes, Oh, no, I knew this could happen. Tells Moses. Moses finds the guy who's in charge of it, and he takes him before him and says, What's the deal, man? Where's the pole? Oh, well, you know, my ministry isn't that important. What? Not important? Now we're going to have to have somebody hold this thing all night. Because you left it. You are important. You might not get a pat on the back every time we get up and move this tabernacle, but we need you. Every part was important. And they all knew that. And so they all pitched in together. The numbers are given in verse 46. All who were numbered of the Levites, who Moses, Aaron, and the leaders of Israel numbered by their families, by their fathers' houses, from 30 years old and above, even to 50 years old, everyone who came to do the work of service. I love that. Doing the work of service and the work of bearing burdens in the tabernacle of meeting. Those who were numbered were 8,580. This is a great illustration of the body of Christ. So many parts, but each having a singular function that is felt by everybody. Your body is pretty amazing, isn't it? You've got about 30 trillion cells, give or take a few, depending on what day of the week perhaps it is. You've got about 30 trillion cells. In each of those cells, you have a nucleus. In each nucleus, it's like a little city. It's like a mini Tokyo. You have messages that are being given and received million times per second to different portions. You have genetic material in each cell that tells that cell how to function from birth till death. It tells all about you. It's like a, a printout, a code. If you were to convert... One cell of your body, the genetic material contained in one cell, and you were to decode it into written form, you would have 4,000 volumes of information. Basically, it would fill the stage from front to back, side to side, and all the way up. About 4,000 books would be the information decoded from your DNA in one cell. Now, if you were to decode all 30 trillion cells into written form, you know how many books you'd have? You'd fill the Grand Canyon about 200 times. That's one body. You are fearfully and wonderfully made, but your body necessitates the giving and receiving of all of these little messages. What if one of your little members says, I'm not going to take the message? <laughs> That's what happens when a patient has multiple sclerosis hardened pieces of tissue on the brain or on the spinal cord. And so the impulse, the synapse, doesn't make a connection. It's stifled. And so the movements aren't smooth but jerky. The message isn't received. Think of how horrible it would be if the messages weren't received. Let's say you leaned on a stove. And the message didn't go to your brain from your hand. Get me out of here. It's hot. It just said, oh, this feels nice be devastating. The body of Christ has so many members. But if a person isn't doing what God called them to do, the message doesn't get through. And I see uh, Jesus Christ as the brain, the head. The Holy Spirit is like the nervous system conveying the message of Christ to all the members. What if you have a stubborn member? And the rest of the body is stifled. We don't receive what you have to offer. What ministry God has given to you. So all these thousands of Levites, according to their number, according to their function, they received the message and they did what God called them to do. How about you? Are you doing that in the body of Christ? Remember Paul said in Corinthians, he said, what if the foot were to speak and the foot would say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. I've always wanted to be a hand, but I'm this foot, I'm in a shoe. I don't smell very good. What a horrible ministry to have, a foot. 
I wish I was a hand. Because I'm not a hand, I'm just not a, I'm not of the body. Paul said, is it therefore not of the body? Or what if the ear were to say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body. Paul said, do you see how ridiculous that is? What if the whole body were an eye? Imagine a six-foot eye rolling around the church. Great vision, but can't hear anything. What if the whole body were a hand? This is out of 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So each part in the body plays an important function. Now you might be one of those members of the body that you're not visibly seen, like somebody's eyes are, or smile is, or hands are. Maybe you're unseen, but you know, the most important parts of our body aren't seen. What is the last time you really thought about your pituitary? Or you got up and, I, and you said, I wonder how my cellotersica is faring this morning, and if the pituitary is sitting in it just so. When is the last time you thought to your friend, hey, how's your pancreas doing, man? <laughs> but if there started an abnormal growth pattern, you'd be worried about the pituitary. You'd go see an endocrinologist. Or if cancer developed in the pancreas, oh, listen, you'd know about it. What if your lungs got angry because they got up one day and said, I don't like this place of being behind everything. I, I, want, I want visibility. I want exposure, man. And so your lungs decided to just sort of pop out of your chest so that people would see them. You would die of an infection. They need to be covered up. You don't see them, but they're so necessary, and, and, and that's exactly the message that Paul gets across in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. All the parts are necessary. Visibility does not nece- uh, mean necessity. Or more important, all of us are necessary parts. All right, we get the idea. They did it according to the commandment. And we'll just end with Verse 49, according to the commandment of the Lord, they were numbered by the hand of Moses, each according to his service, according to his task. Thus they were numbered by him as the Lord commanded Moses. Now we'll have time to get into chapter 5. Wow, we're really cruising. I just thought of something else. There was an induction center for the army in Argentina. And at that time, at a certain age, like the Levites, all of the men had to join the army in Argentina. So a man came to the induction center. He had no arms. It was a congenital anomaly. The guy in charge said, okay, here's your number. Shave your head. Here's your clothes. And he said, oh, come on. Look at me. I don't have any arms. What good am I? So you don't have a choice. You're in the army. As soon as he got in and he was still complaining, what good am I? I have no function. I have no value. His commanding officer said, I've got just the job for you. I want you to go up on that hill and tell the man who is pumping the water when the pail is full because he's blind. And so here he was pumping the water. He couldn't see, but the man without the arms, he could see, though he had no arms. So you guys work together. And they worked and they formed a perfect team. You all, all of us, have deficits. We have things we're not good at. It's all right. Find the things you are good at. And the gifts that God has given you and function with the unction of the Holy Spirit. That's the secret. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a discharge and who becomes defiled by a dead body, you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. The children of Israel did so. Put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses, so did the children of Israel. Now, as we read this, it sounds harsh. Boy, that's not very loving just to put people out. No, listen, this is very loving. Because these are diseases that could be easily contracted. They were highly contagious. And because the whole camp was loved, 
you isolate those that have the disease. That is saying, well, come on, let's spread all the people that have the disease around with us and we'll all hug and we'll all get together. No, God loved his people and wanted to preserve them, so you put them in isolation. And Leviticus tells us that there's a certain period of time and the priest examines the skin to see if it's a scab or if it's a sore. And uh, if it's cleared up after a while, they're readmitted into the camp. If not, they have to live in a certain period of isolation because other people would become infected. And it certainly wouldn't be loving to infect everybody else. And so they were put out. And uh, they had leprosy or a discharge or whatever. Um, The leprosy in the Bible, there's a couple of different ideas and terms. One is sort of a general skin disease. Sara'at is the Hebrew term. But the most common form of contagious leprosy, which is now containable today, Hansen's disease, is myobacterium leprae. It's very, very contagious. People who work among leper colonies in the old days when they didn't have medication for it would often contract it and die because of it. It's a painful, slow death. It starts out with a general sensation of pain. Ulcers develop on the outside as well as the inside of the body. The hair falls out. The eyelashes fall out. Uh, nodules form on the vocal cords, nodules form on the skin. They uh, give out a very foul-smelling discharge after a period of time. Um, nerves become deadened in the, uh, pr- the extremities. Sometimes the hands will claw up, and uh, they start losing feelings in the limbs. And it's, it lasts between 9 and 30 years. It is a slow, painful death. And there are social implications. When they were put out of the camp in Israel, when the synagogue developed, so that they could worship, they developed a special chamber in the temple and in the synagogue called Mechitzah, a place that the lepers would gather. And only the lepers. It was a special isolation booth where they could hear the message of worship, but they couldn't be admitted into the main part of the worship. And again, think of the feelings of isolation and ostracism. What if you had kids and a wife? You'd have to wear certain clothes, put dust on your hair, shout out, unclean, unclean, cover your mouth so that you don't breathe germs on anyone. You couldn't grab your kids and kiss them. You couldn't snuggle them to sleep at night. You couldn't embrace your wife. You were ostracized. Leprosy in the Bible is also a type of sin. It starts off very small, usually as a red nodule after the period of pain. But it spreads very quickly. There is no cure. In those days, there was no cure at all for leprosy. Now, while there was no cure for leprosy, it's an interesting thing in the Bible. There was a whole chapter written about the healing of lepers. In case a leper gets healed, here is the law of the leper in the day of his cleansing. So God made provision for healing of the leper. And of course, Jesus, when he healed the man of leprosy in the New Testament, said, now go show yourself to the priest and give the necessary offering, as is stated in the law. Very, very much like sin. This was put out of the camp. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, verse 5, Speak to the children of Israel, when a man or woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord, and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has done. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full value plus one-fifth. So you rip somebody's camel off or you rip somebody's money off, you restore it to them and you add 20% of the value. And give it to him as, give it to the one that he has wronged. But if the man has no kinsman to whom the restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest in addition to the ram of the atonement, which the atonement has made for him. Every offering of the holy things of the children of Israel, which they bring to the priest, shall be his. And every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. Now today, let's say your TV gets ripped off and the police catch the guy who did it and your TV's all thrashed. Tough. Sorry, man. We found the guy. And uh, here's your TV back. Uh, You've got a big hole in it, and it's useless. Oh, I don't have insurance. Oh, well, sorry, man. 
And Israel, they said, no, you catch the guy, you make him pay the full value of it and add 20%. I like that law. Because that's true repentance, not just, sorry, man. It's not repentance. Faith without works is dead. Restitution is part of it. Remember, even Jesus said, if you go to the altar to worship and you know your brother has something against you, you leave your gift at the altar and you go make reconciliation with your brother whom you have wronged after you make reconciliation. Then you come and talk to me. You come and worship. There should be. We should take responsibility if we've wronged someone. Make it right. Talk it over. Pray with that person. Say, oh, but wouldn't it be so much easier if I could just talk it over with God and say, I'm sorry, Lord. I repent, Lord. And then it would be all right. Oh, it would be much easier. But it's against the commandment of Jesus Christ. Okay, picture the scene. Let's say after the service tonight, I'm tired. I get in my car. And I put it in reverse. It's dark. And I don't happen to see the brand new car that you just bought yesterday. It's sitting out there. It's got the little sticker on the window. You paid full price for it. It's shiny. It's red. It's boss looking. And I don't see it. I pull back. Crunch. And you hear that crunch. And your stomach starts churning. You think, oh, it couldn't be, could it? And you look out the window. And sure enough, there's Pastor Skip. (laughs) Just mutilated your brand new red car. And you come rushing out with your friends. And you look at it, your mouth is down. And I get out of the car and I survey the damage. And I go, oh, man. And then I bow my head. Oh, Lord Jesus. Forgive me of my sin and hurting my brother's car. And oh, just give him the grace to forgive and provide all of his needs that he might now pay for these damages. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Lord. And I open my eyes and I give you a big hug, get in my car and go, oh, isn't grace wonderful? And I just drive away. Is that right? No, it's not right. I owe you for what I've done. I have to make it right. I'm sharing that because I hit somebody's car on the way in. No, I'm just kidding. I didn't do that. You make it right. You make restitution. You go to your brother. By the way, Zacchaeus did that, didn't he, in the New Testament? He was the little short guy who climbed up the tree to see Jesus going through Jericho. He was the rip-off tax collector. He invited Jesus over for lunch. And whatever happened, we don't know. Behind closed doors, Zacchaeus was changed in that encounter with Jesus Christ. And afterwards, Zacchaeus said, If I have wronged anyone, I will restore him fourfold. That's above and beyond the law. Four times what I've stolen from him. That's change. That's true encounter with God. Whatever it takes, God. To make it right. Oh, that's a change for Zacchaeus. Up to this point, he was thinking, what I get, what I want, what I need. Now it's what I restore to others. There was change in his life. Now, the rest of this chapter is odd. And we have five minutes, so I'll just sum it up. Let's just read a little bit, and we'll sum it up, and we'll close. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel. And say to them, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it's hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. If the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled himself, or, has this, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah barley meal, pour no oil on it, no frankincense on it, because it's a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. The priest shall bring her near, set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel, take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle. Put it into the water. Who'd want to drink that? 
The priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. The priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. The priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while you're under your husband's authority, if you have defiled yourself and some other some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under oath of the curse. He shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. This is like an Old Testament lie detector test for those who have been sexually unfaithful in marriage. And if the woman said, no, really, I've been, I haven't done it. Now, if she was telling the truth, she, nothing would happen. She wouldn't get sick. She just, it'd be like drinking a glass of water. But if she was lying, it goes on to say that her thigh would rot and her belly would swell. It's interesting. There's a lot of things I could say about this. Or I could just pass over it. It would be a lot more convenient just to say amen and start fresh next week with a new chapter. If a person was suspicious of their mate, and by the way, I want to just clear something up in case you think, God's a male chauvinist. What about the man? Well, read Leviticus. A man or a woman who were caught were stoned to death. The man was not exempt. This is simply an example. If there was suspicion, you go to who? The priest. Not Ann Landers or a counselor for $75 an hour. You go to the priest. And they had, and I don't have this method, Sometimes I wish I did. Not, not because I want to see thighs rot and bellies swell, but sometimes there are accusations and denials and it's tangled. You think, man, if there was just a sure way to tell with some individuals. But on the other hand, I'm glad this method isn't around today. There would be a lot of rotting thighs and swollen bellies. Um... Guilt is a powerful emotion, and it needs to be dealt with. You can develop a guilt complex, and guilt can cause all sorts of neuroses to develop. When I was a kid, and I did something wrong, my dad would promptly discipline me. He'd tell me why I was wrong, and I would, uh, he would persuade me to not do it again. He took me to the board of discipline which is about that long, a little board of discipline. And it got to be that I knew that when he applied discipline to my life, there was closure. It was over. He wasn't going to bring it up again. I would be punished for what I've done, and it was over. I was restored. There was a time when I was a little bit older, and I did some pretty rotten stuff. My dad brought me before him, and he said, You've really disappointed me. You've broken my heart. I'm not going to spank you. You're too old for that. But I just want you to know that you've really broken my heart. And I left there feeling unsatisfied, wishing that he would spank me, get it over with, bring it to closure. That would have taken away the guilt. But to know that I'd broken his heart, oh, it just, I couldn't handle that. If it could have just been dealt with, it'd be over with. I'd be restored. Wouldn't talk about it anymore. Think of the psychological pressure of this gal before the priest. Did you sleep with another man? No, sir. Well, we're about to find out. Stand up before God. Okay. Ooh, the pressure. The bitter water that brings a curse. Um, now, Again, God is not a chauvinist. Remember in John chapter 8, 
Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And they said, this woman's caught in the very act. The law says you ought to stone her. Jesus just started writing on the ground, drawing in the dust. And then he said, okay, which, who's the first guy? Whoever is sinless, let him cast the first stone. Here, here's a rock. Which of you is without sin? Now, we don't know what he wrote. I just would make a conjecture that maybe he was writing their names in the dust and the secret sins that nobody else knew about. He would write them out. Lust, hatred, envy, whatever. Maybe he just wrote them on the dust and they came and looked and, whoa. And Jesus said, hey, stoner, who's without sin? And from the eldest to the youngest, they dropped the stone. Jesus said, woman, where are your accusers? Sir, I have none. Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Restored her. Wanted to forgive her. Because Jesus knew that she was guilty, but where's the guy? It takes two to tango. And though these Pharisees may not have been caught in the very act, Jesus said, if you looked at another woman to lust after her, you're already an adulterer. That implicates all of us, guys. We've all sinned. So Jesus reached out to forgive this woman. Again, the difference of the Old Testament and the New Testament. I thank God it's not around today. So she would drink it with all of these offerings. And um, verse 27, when he had made her drink the water, it shall be if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord, and the priest shall execute all of this law upon her. The man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Fidelity is a serious thing in a marriage relationship. God takes it very seriously. When you share your vows at your wedding day, you say, for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part, you are my mate, period. God takes that very seriously. And when it's broken, God takes that very seriously. In fact, that is the one acceptance clause whereby Jesus said, a marriage can be dissolved. A person can get a divorce for the cause of sexual immorality, but for no other cause. Because Jesus said, if you divorce for any other reason, you will spread adultery all over the place. You will be an adulterer. You will cause the person you marry to be an adulterer, and you will just proliferate it. But if there is sexual immorality, that is the acceptance clause for divorce. And uh, there's perhaps more to say on this, but uh, time's up. We're after the time, actually. Now we'll get into the law of the Nazarite after Christmas, because next week I'll be in the Middle East. The week after will be Christmas Eve and then New Year's Eve, and then we'll finish numbers if the Lord tarries, and we last till 96. A girl noticed her grandmother's wedding ring. She was a teenager, and she said, Grandma, tell you what, that's funky jewelry you have on. The wedding rings, they're just, look at it, all the ones from your era, they look so thick and cumbersome. And her grandmother said, Honey, that's because in my day and age, these things were meant to last a lifetime. Your marriage was meant to last a lifetime. That's God's ideal. One man, one woman, for a lifetime. And I realize that ideal is not always lived up to and sin can enter the relationship. And there are many of you that have lived through broken relationships, broken patterns of relationships. And God has healed or is healing and God is forgiving and, and so forth. 
But God does take your vows very seriously. Men, watch out who you even look at or how you look at a person. Don't flirt. Keep the embraces for your wife. Keep those looks for your wife. And don't rationalize. You say, well, not much to look at anymore. Are you? (laughs) Beauty is vain, but a woman that fears the Lord, she shall be praised. Concentrate on building her up in Christ. We're fading, man. We're, we're getting wrinkled. We're getting older. There's a lot more to a relationship. It's so awesome to see a couple just through thick and thin keep their vows. It's so stabilizing. At my parents' 50th wedding anniversary, we all stood up and said something that we were thankful for, and I just said, thanks for staying married for 50 years. What an example you've set. What a pattern you've set. I know it hasn't been easy. I know there have been ups and downs, but thank you for giving us that example and stability of just being there for us. Father, we thank you for your pattern and your word. We thank you, Lord, for your concern that relationships stay together, that people might experience the stability of that kind of love. Oh God, give us strength in our relationships to love that spouse that you've given to us. In Jesus' name, we're so grateful, Lord, for the grace that is so evident in the New Testament in comparison to the Old. We see examples, we see lessons for us, and yet we can't help but be reminded of the scripture for the law came through Moses but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ how grateful we are in Jesus name amen 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 in Jesus